The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And today we're going to be reading in 1 Samuel chapter 23. There's going to be uh, some things in here as we read it um, without context. might seem a little strange. Um, what we need to know before we read is we've been learning about David. We've been learning about Saul. Uh, we've been learning that Saul is the acting king of Israel, but God has taken the kingdom from Saul and given it to David. And yet David is on the run. David's running for his life uh, because Saul is trying to kill him. And so here in this passage in, Psalm 23, or in 1 Samuel 23, um, we pick up with David on the run, um, running for his life, literally. And we see God, how God provides in this uh, trouble that he faces. So we'll read just the first 14 verses in, in uh, 1 Samuel 23. <clears throat> now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away the livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an aphod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars." And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he had said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the aphod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Well, we're given another bit of history, as we have seen uh, throughout this story. Another picture in the day of the life of the people of ancient Israel. But as we learn from previous stories... A normal day recorded in Scripture is, is anything but ordinary. It's anything but normal. We might see just a normal day and some normal struggles, but God is up to something very big. At this point, David is in the wilderness. He is on the run from Saul. Saul, again, he's the acting king of Israel. God has taken the kingdom from him. David has been the new anointed king, and yet Saul is seeking to kill him for that reason. The two men are on opposite sides of a mountain. Saul has with him 3,000 men of the strongest men in his army, hand-picked soldiers of the army of Israel, hunting down David. David has with him 600 men. It's a great number for a man on the run, but still, he is grossly outmatched. 
And this picture is really what we have here of Saul and David. It's like a Tom and Jerry style fight. Saul is running after David and David is running away from Saul. And it goes on like this for literally years. Some scholars even think David is being hunted for up to seven years by Saul. Saul is hunting him, seeking to kill him, and David is just running from him and avoiding him at every turn. And we see this in the strangest way. Saul and his army chases down David and gets close, and God says, David, you got to go from here. Go to Keilah. Saul finds out where they are, and God says, Saul is coming. Leave from this place, or you, sh- you shouldn't go. Saul gets close, and God distracts Saul, and Saul goes in the opposite direction. All of this chasing done by Saul and the running away done by David reveals this prominent reality that God never allows David to fall into the hands of Saul. God is protecting him at every, at every turn. God's providing for him. God is, is, is moving his steps. He is opening doors. He is, he, is, he is telling him to go one way or another. And it goes on for years. Over and over again, we see God directing his situation, planning events, working all things according to his purposes for David and for Israel. The God of the Bible is a God who is never confused. This is something that we see here in this story of just, it seems like just dry history, but we see evidently that God is a God who is never confused. He is never caught off guard. The God of the Bible rules heaven and earth and all creatures in such a way that whatever happens to us, whether it be success or failure, whether it's blessing or adversity, whether it's life or death, nothing is the result of random coincidence but comes to us through the wise and loving hand of God who cares. The theological word for this is the word providence. It means that God provides. That word is obvious. Providence means that God provides. But but more than that, it means that God wisely and powerfully directs all things to to come to pass according to the purpose of his goodwill and, and for those who love him for the purpose of his will and the good of his people. And we see this unfolding with David in this brief passage. But how does God's providence for David, which is evident here, as as David, David goes to God, what should I do? And God says, go here. What should I do now? Go here. What should I do next? Go here. How does God's providence in orchestrating his events in his life, how does that benefit us? I mean, what good is it for us? How does God's providence help us in the middle of a terrible chapter that you might find yourself in? David is in the midst of a miserable chapter in his life. He's in the fight of his life, literally the worst time in his life. And how did God help him? And if we see how God helps David, we can see how God's providence for David is also good news for us. Knowing that God provides helps us in a few ways. First, I want to show you this, that God's providence for David helps us to know this, that we have access to a God who hears us. We can't overestimate the privilege that we see that David has, the, the privilege that he enjoys with God. David has access to God's guidance in a way that is strangely normal. Isn't it so strange as we see David's communication with God? It's as if David is standing there, person to person with God, side by side with God Almighty. They both are looking at a map on where to go, and God is there holding one one corner of the map, and David is holding another corner of the map, and they're both talking about where should we go. Isn't this fascinating, the kind of conversation that they have, the access that David has to God? 
His access to God hinges on this man named Abiathar and his aphod. An aphod is like, it's like a superhero's cape. That's exactly what it is. It's a cape that's covered in jewels and, and gems and other precious stones. It's covered in gold and other precious metals. It was worn by a priest. Abiathar was the priest. It was worn by a priest who, upon wearing this, this, this royal robe, it symbolized being clothed in righteousness. And as he was clothed in righteousness, he would approach God on behalf of the people. And because he was clothed in righteousness, God would, God would communicate with the priest, and the priest, priest would communicate with God on behalf of the people, and the priest would then take this message to God's people. It was a way of having <clears throat> this direct access to God through, this, through what this aphod represented. It represented the righteousness that is required to have access with God. So when David takes the aphod in his hand, we see the confident access that he has with God. And you might say what I said as I am looking through this and desiring God's providence and hand in my life. You may say, that's amazing, but I have never received this kind of precise, clear, direct guidance from God on anything. And I would say, you don't. What's wrong with you guys? You don't have that kind of faith? No, of course you don't. Neither do I. This is so strange. It's okay. We can admit that. This is, this is oddly precise, oddly casual. The guidance that is provided to David is, is strange. It's so person to person. We are not David, and we're not the chosen king of God's people. And at the risk of damaging your ego, we should realize that our function in God's redemptive story is on a totally different level than, than David's. But what is essential in this, in this story, in David's, in David's story with God, is not the information that is shared and how it is shared, but what's important to know is the, the access that is given, the access that is given to David, the privilege that David had and the confident access that he had with God was through the appointed priest. And there may be extreme differences in the nature of their communication and what was shared but there is no difference between the privilege that David enjoyed and the privilege that you and I enjoy today through Jesus Christ. What, after all, does Hebrews 4, 14 mean for us? Let's jump to that where Hebrews 4, 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may be, receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Again, the aphod represented this perfect righteousness. The aphod represented this access to God that was required by perfect righteousness. And we learn in this passage that we have a priest, but no, he does not wear a robe of righteousness. He is the perfect one. He was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. We no longer need an aphod or a symbol of perfect righteousness. We have the perfect righteous one himself who has gone to God on our behalf. We see so clearly with David that God demonstrates his providence through his active presence in, and involvement in his life. The, the providence of God is that God is not distant from his creation, that he is not far off, but he is there. He is among his people. He is communicating with his people. He is desiring relationship with them, and he is granting access to God 
or to, to himself with his peop- from his people based on the righteous act of Jesus. Do you believe that, that Jesus Christ, that through Jesus Christ you have this level of access to God? Do you believe that? That through Jesus Christ that we may find in a, in a time of need that we can find help that we seek. That God hears us, that He cares for us, that He is powerful enough to do something. Do we think that God is far off, that He, that he doesn't want to be bothered with, our, that, with all of our tough things that we deal with in a day. He has better things to worry about. Do you believe that you have the level of access that David himself had in this moment? You have as well. What an amazing thing. What an amazing invitation. What an amazing access that we have to God. God's providence teaches us that because of Jesus' righteousness, and he has gone before us to the whole, through the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God, because he is perfectly righteous, he communicates to God the Father on our behalf. Anything that we pray to God on, in, through Jesus' name, He hears. He receives those. He is with us and He is able to hear. David was confident, and so can we be. Knowing that God provides shows us another thing in this passage. Not only does it show us that God hears us, as it evidently does here, that we have access to God, but it also shows that we have a God who sets His affection on us. Not only is he just hearing us and saying, "Uh uh-huh, 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 I'm here, I'm listening, keep talking. We see the affection of God, the love of God bleed through this passage. Let me show you here. I bet this this conversation that God has with David is devastating to David. It's not what David wants to hear. If God were concerned with David's self-esteem, he would not have said the things that he said. Let Let me show you. David goes to Keilah, hearing that they are being threatened by their mutual enemy the Philistines. David risks his own life and the life of his own men and his own reputation. He risks it all to save and rescue the people of Keilah from the hands of their enemies. Saul, hearing that David is in this city that is walled in by gates and and walls, he is now saying, I've got David cornered. And now Saul has determined to destroy the entire city and all the inhabitants in the city and they are going to be collateral damage in order to kill David. He is seeking after one man, and he is, he is willing to kill an entire city. The people of Keilah owe David their life because David has rescued them. They owe him their life. And David goes to God, and he says, God, can you tell me something? If I stay here and Saul comes to hunt me down, will the people of Keilah betray me? And will they hand me over to Saul? Will they reject me? Will they forget the gift that I have given to them? And God says, yes, they will. You can imagine how deeply hurt this this would make David. But ultimately, it, it saves David's life, doesn't it? It is the information that David needs to hear, and yet it's probably the information he didn't want to hear. How painful this must have been for David to risk his life for these people, and they so quickly, out of sake of continuing to preserve their own comfort and safety, they would, just, they would give David up. They would betray him. It takes real love to do that, to, to say something to somebody you know is going to hurt them. It takes real love and affection for a person to tell them true things, even if they ultimately wound that person. Maybe you've heard the phrase, the opposite of love is not hatred, but indifference. If you see someone going headfirst into trouble, 
and you don't do anything. It's not because you hate them. More likely, it's because you don't care for them. You don't care what happens in their life. You are indifferent, which is much worse, actually. The more you care for a person and truly love them and truly set your affection on them, the more willing you will be to bring hard truths into their life, bringing hard words that even though they wound that person, are things that they need to hear ultimately to rescue them. If God did not love David and set his affection on David, he would just tell David, you know, I'm sure the people of Keilah are really thankful for you. And you're a good person, David. You did a good thing. And I think you have a good chance of maybe convincing them, if you talk to them enough, that they will help you out. After all, they owe you. No, he says, David, I know this is going to hurt. You have no friends there. You need to get out. They're going to rat you out. They're going to turn you over. They don't love you. What is recorded here in this passage makes God's words very, very few. Isn't this interesting? If I wondered if there's more to the conversation. Uh, you ha you're having this conversation with God. I would like to think that the conversation consists of much more than just yes or no questions and answers. You finally have access to God and you're talking with Him as face to face. And you're just asking yes or no questions. I mean, wouldn't you be like, Okay, God, what, you know, what's the mega million numbers? Like, what's the, what, you know, what, you want to, what's going to happen tomorrow? You know, all this stuff. But he's just saying, yes or no questions and yes or no answers. But for our sake, we're not, giving, we're not given possibly what happens in the entire conversation. For our sake, we're given exactly what we need to know. We're going to ask what we need to know about the exchange. And this is what we need to know, that God loves David, that God is for David, that God has set his affections on David and he's looking out for David. That's what we need to know. Isn't that clear? Can you appreciate that beyond just the information? Can, but can you let that sink in for a moment in a way that it stirs your praise for this? That God is actually fighting for David. That I want you to understand this, that, that he is good. That he is for him. That he wasn't wake, woken up by David's prayers and bothered by David. But rather what is happening is that God has set his affections and heart on David to make sure that David survived to such a degree that he would rearrange the entire landscape of history in order to make sure that David's life is preserved. Can you appreciate what God is doing here? And just stand back and feel amazed. Like, wow, look at all that God has done. Because he loves David. This is what he would do. He would move kings. He would move nations. He would, he would save cities. He would do all of this to save David. And let me tell you something else that is rather dramatic. He would do the same for you. He has done the same for you. God has been at work all along to guide you, prompt you, lead you, to steer you, to carry you, to accomplish His purposes for you. And He has moved the landscape and direct the landscape of all history in order to accomplish that for you because He has set His affection on you. What's His purpose in all that? To give you life. And life is found in Himself to give you Himself. He desires to give you the fullness of all that He is. And He will stop at nothing to make sure that you have Him. He has set His affections on you. 
This is what God's providence is. It's not just a theological information that we just, we just put in our memory brink. Okay, God provides. But why? Why does he provide? Because he has set his affection on you. Because he has set his affection on you. God does not waver depending on your actions between loving him and hating him. His providence is constantly fixed upon your spiritual well-being in Christ. He is fixed on His purposes in giving you the fullness of all that He is. Fixed on it. He is not disturbed by our prayers. He is not caught off guard by the wickedness of the world or even wickedness at our own hands. God is not, He is not surprised. In fact, He has orchestrated and directs the course of history because of his fixation on your joy. He has moved history for it. And this is no small exercise. God goes to great lengths to accomplish this, to preserve David, to to work out his affection that he has for David. We'll see in the final two verses of the passage we read at the great lengths that God goes. Then David and his men, I'll re- read this again, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. They went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. Finally, Not only does God's providence teach us that we have a God who hears us and that we have a God who has set his affections on us, but we have a God who stands between us and our trouble. In this story, David is protected by the rock that comes between him and Saul. In verse 14, it's called the stronghold. What we are told in this chapter and even the next, we see David going from place to place to place. Every time he catches wind that Saul is getting close, he goes and hides in a, in a crack of a rock, in a cave of some place, in, the, in these rocky hillsides surrounding the area. David spends years, many days at length, hiding from his enemies in a cave surrounded by rock. And during one of his escapes, David is hiding in a rock. And imagine the hours that pass. The nights are very cold and wet. You're sleeping, a rock is a pillow for your head. You're hiding, you're trying not to make any sounds so your enemies, you don't give away your location. You're cold, you're hungry, you're afraid, you're in the dark. What do you do to pass the time? I mean, what do you do in those dark, lonely, chronically long times? What would you do? Well, David does what what he knows how to do. He writes music. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? Do you, is that what you do when you're really just bummed out? When you're struggling in your day, do you just start, you know what, I'm just going to compose something. <laughs> you know, I'm going to write some music. David does this very thing. And during one of the nights where he is held up between a rock and he has nothing to do, he writes music. And you know what's so neat? That recording of that song that he writes while hidden in the rock, we have. Psalm 18 explicitly tells us on one of these days when he is hiding from Saul in a rock, he writes music. And here's what he says in Psalm 18. He says, For it is you who light my lamp. 
The Lord my God lightens my darkness, for by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. The God, his, this God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made, me, made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not sleep. Slip. Big difference. What an amazing thing. Isn't this song amazing given the context of David's hiding in the rock? It's pitch black in a cave at night and David says, Lord, you're the light in my darkness. You make me able to see where I'm going. I'm being hunted by troops, and Lord, you make me run to safety. I have no weapons. Lord, you are my shield. The rock protects me. Lord, you are the rock that protects me. My body is weak, but you, Lord, you make me so strong that I can bend a bow of bronze. I can't even bend like a compression bow. David's like, Lord, you make me so strong I can bend a bow of bronze. My body is weak. My feet are clinging at night to this ledge that's three inches wide. But Lord, you give me a wide place to stand and help my feet from slipping. As David reflects on his struggles, and indeed he reflects on his whole life, he sees that it was God all along that was his rock. It was God who was his light in the midst of darkness. It was God who was the shield. It was God who stood between him and his trouble every single day of his life and provided him safety. It was God who provided him life and salvation in the midst of any struggle that he faced. The rest of the chapter shows David going in and out of these rocks and climbing the mountain wilderness. And one particular cave that David used to escape Saul and his army was called the Rock of Escape. <clears throat> Consider the kind of encouragement you give to others when they are struggling. Consider the kind of encouragement that you seek when you are struggling. Do you say, you know, things aren't so bad. I'm sure things will get better. Time heals all wounds. People in Africa have it worse than you. Cheer up, Charlie, right? How do you feel encouraged when you are struggling? What do you desire people to say? What, what kind of songs do you sing? What kind of songs do you sing for others? What lyrics do you speak? There is a song called Cheer Up, Charlie. It's from 1971, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's the better, it's the good Willy Wonka, not that weird one, you know. <laughs> It's the Gene Wilder one, right? The, the, just the, the best, the vintage Willy Wonka. You know what I'm talking about. Matt's with me. There's a song also in that one to encourage people in the midst of trouble. It's called Cheer Up, Charlie. Charlie's mother sings it. It goes a little like this. James, would you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Here's what it says. Just listen to these lyrics. Cheer up, Charlie. You get blue like everyone. But me and Grandpa Joe can make your troubles go away. Blow away. There they go. Cheer up, Charlie. Give me a smile. What happened to the smile I used to know? I'll stop. Don't you know that the grin has always been my sunshine? Let that sunshine show. Come on, Charlie, no need to frown. Deep down, you know the world is still your toy. 
When the world gets heavy, never pit or pat him. Up and at him, boy. Someday, sweet as a song, Charlie's lucky day will come along. Till that day, you've got to stay strong, Charlie. Up on top is right where you belong. Look up, Charlie. You'll see a star. Just follow it and keep your dreams in view. Pretty soon, the sky is going to clear up, Charlie. Cheer up, Charlie, do. Cheer up, Charlie. Just be glad you're you. How gross is that? <laughs> the song that David sings, the song that Charlie's mother sings, are two different songs, both searching for a solution to our trouble. One song is a song that our culture so proudly sings, and the other song is a song that every Christian who trusts in Jesus and God's providence should sing. Charlie's mother says, your troubles are a myth. Just blow them away. Wipe them away. Think about better things. You have nothing that you need that is not within yourself. Your lucky day is coming. Your lucky day. Things will turn out better. Just keep being good. Keep being the person that you know you should be. And things will happen as they should for you, Charlie. David's song sings quite a different tune. David's help comes from God's gracious and powerful presence. It comes from the Lord. Do you need comfort? Are you, are you struggling? What does good, biblical, gospel truth-fueled encouragement in the midst of struggle truly sound like? It's the encouragement that helps people find strength in God who is a rock of deliverance when grief and danger are hunting us at every corner. Hunting us, seeking to destroy us and take our life and joy from us. We need words of encouragement that call us to, to find strength in a God who is the rock of our deliverance, a rock of, of safety, a rock of rescue and escape. We need people who will encourage us and words of remembrance that show us that in the midst of darkness, God is our light. In the midst where our feet feel like they're going to stumble and slip, that God makes our path wide and steady. When we are weak physically and spiritually, that God strengthens us in our inner being and makes us strong for battle. We need that kind of encouragement. In a world full of Charlie's mothers, let's be like David. It's the kind of encouragement we need to hear, the kind of encouragement we need to give to others. We encourage people best, not when we get all cuddly with their self-esteem and telling them that, well, they're good people, they're good enough, and things will work out well. But when we remind them of who God is for us, what He's done for us, and what He promises to complete in us. David praises God, for God is His rock. And Jesus in the New Testament is described the same. His identity is many, many things, many descriptions of who he is. And every description is a description of what he has done and what he will accomplish for us and the world, his creation. Jesus is called the rock. He is the rock of hiding. He is the rock of escape. He is the one who stands between us and our trouble. He is the one who confronts our enemy and defeats our enemy. He is the one to whom we go when we are struggling, where we can find refuge and comfort. Jesus is the rock. And yet, and except Jesus, we, in Jesus we see another element of this rock. The New Testament tells us that that rock is not only can be a place of hiding and salvation, the rock can accomplish something else. The rock can also be a stumbling block for people. It, the rock is not just something that we find safety in, but we can actually trip over and die. 
And that's the nature of Christ and his good news to the world. He's either a rock that saves or he is a rock that causes us to stumble. He's a stumbling block. Well, what's the difference and how do we know which, which way we are utilizing and enjoying him? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us, Peter, which also means rock, you see that God's story is such, full of such beauty and intentionality. Peter tells us the difference, and it depends on whether we reject him or hide in him. The difference between God being a rock of hiding and escape and safety or a stumbling block is the difference between us resting in him, trusting in him, or fleeing from him. To reject him is to rely on anything else as a source of our salvation or future hope. We can attempt to be accepted by God through our good behavior. We can rest in in the faith of our parents. We can look at our accomplishments in this life as currency for God's forgiveness. All of those things that we hang our trust in will cause us to stumble over Christ, will cause us to trip over his message, missing him completely. And in fact, even being wounded by the good news of what he has done. But on the other hand, to hide in him is to see his perfect life, his sacrifice in death, the resurrection and his perfect resurrection to new life as the only protection against God's judgment for our sin. The only hope we have, the only protection that, we, that is available to us is to hide in the rock. And it is there we will find safety and salvation. God's providence for David led him to the rock of escape. Do you see how God drove David and orchestrated the events of his life where David had no place to go but to Christ? As verse 28 says, God's agenda and plan and providence in every detail led him to the rock of escape where he would be saved. And that's what God is doing for us. The struggle that you now face the difficulty in life, the challenges that seem to encamp you on every side is meant, it, it, it flows in ways that we do not understand from the loving hand of God meant to drive you into the crevice of the mountain, into the rock of safety, where there you will be saved. It is meant to drive us to Christ in whose arms we are kept. And that's God's agenda for us. He's not interested in us just becoming more religious and better people. He's not just interested in making us spiritual or having a balanced life. He isn't interested in even us avoiding trouble or being happy or living a serene life where things are just nice and comfortable. He's interested in us being led to the rock of escape. He's interested in us finding Jesus, where we find rescue, salvation, and life. Have you hidden yourself in the rock of escape? Or is Christ a stumbling block? Is the message that He is our salvation and the light in our darkness, the path when we are stumbling? Do you continue to seek things that trying to save yourselves and look deep within you? Do you continue just to resolve to be a better person so that God will appreciate and love you? Those are all ways of running from God's help. But have you taken Christ? Have you trusted in Him? Have you asked for His mercy? And you have you found rest in the salvation he provides and the comfort in a time of trouble. That invitation is for you. He has never denied or rejected a broken heart, a contrite spirit who has come to him for safety. And that cave is wide. It's big. It's wide open. And many can find rest in it. Let's pray.